following sermon is made available by Antioch Presbyterian Church, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. It was the third hour on one seemingly ordinary Friday morning in the land of Israel that the most astonishing words were heard. The scene was just outside of the city on Golgotha's hill. The subjects were three felons, each one of them hanging upon a wooden cross. And the saying came from the lips of the only one of the three who was unlawfully condemned. The man who spoke was a dreadful sight to behold. He was beaten, bruised, and bloody. His back was lacerated to the bone and his face bludgeoned beyond recognition. And yet, despite his horrific condition, he mustered the strength to respond to a dying sinner's request. And to one of those three with whom he was crucified, A thief who, having now reflected upon his crimes, was truly repentant. He uttered these unforgettable words. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Well, in the second chapter of the Bible's first book, we find a a description of that dying thief's destination. For it's here that Moses walks us through a garden, the translation of which in Greek is paradise, and points out the various elements of life within it. First, the job which God gave to the man in order to cultivate its growth. Second, the agreement which God made with the man in order to guard its sanctity. And third, the bride whom God gifted to the man in order to increase its prosperity. But as we consider each of those three elements of our passage this evening, I want you to retain in your minds one overarching and cardinal truth. That Christ died to bring us to paradise. Christ died to bring us to paradise. And the three divisions by which you'll see this are, first, Adam's career in paradise verses 4 to 15. Second, Adam's covenant in paradise, 
verses 16 and 17. And third, Adam's companion in paradise, verses 18 to 25. So if you would, let's commence with the first of those three divisions, Adam's career in paradise, verses 4 to 15. The narrative of Genesis 1 presents us with a, a bird's eye view of creation. There we merely glance at God's making all things from nothing by the word of his power within the space of six days and all very good. But in the second chapter of Genesis, that general overview gives way to a more zoomed-in perspective. And you'll notice that the events being limbed here are a, an elaboration of day six. That's why we find a restatement of God's making mankind. But the key to understand what's being said here is by noticing the additional information which didn't appear before. You see, according to verse 5, the fruitlessness of the land before our first father's formation presented a very serious problem. There was no man to work the ground. Therefore, Jehovah's solution was to design his very first employee. Now, there are two things about Adam's career in paradise to which I would draw your attention. First, the conditions of his work. And second, the content of his work. First, the conditions of his work. Adam worked from home. But it's not the kind of home that you and I live in, is it? He had the cleanest of air to breathe, the purest of water to drink, and the sweetest of fruit to taste. The grass was emerald green, and the skies sapphire blue. The fields were emerald green. The fragrant aroma of the heavenly scented flowers which sprung up from that grass filled his nostrils. The pleasant melody of birds singing in the trees pleased his ears. And the charming sight of the lion laid down with the lamb delighted his eyes. You see, the region of Eden and especially the garden which resided within it was a place of natural beauty. We know that the garden was lofty because it was the fountainhead of four great rivers which irrigated the surrounding districts. We know that the garden was lucrative because the roots which those rivers tuck encompass lands full of gold and precious stones. And we know that the garden was lush because a whole menu of trees protruded from the ground to form that first man's diet. The conditions of Adam's work describe the garden's natural beauty. But they also describe the garden's spiritual beauty. After all, this isn't just any garden. 
This is a temple garden. It's not just your ordinary garden, it's a place of worship. In fact, right there from the beginning of Genesis, the whole of creation has been portrayed as a kind of cosmic cathedral. You find it in verse 2 where the Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep, just as the Shekinah glory would overshadow God's dwelling. And then again in verse 14, when the sun, moon, and stars illuminate the skies in the same way that the priest-lit lamps would enlighten God's house. In the same way also that the entrance to Eden was on the east, so it was with the temple's gate. In the same way that precious stones were found on the banks of paradise, so did they grace the breastplate of the high priest in the sanctuary. And in the same way that the cherubim would guard the garden after man's expulsion, so were they stationed above the mercy seat in the holy of holies. See, friends, the allusions are frequent and clear. The earth as a whole is depicted as the outer court, the region of Eden as the holy place, and the garden in Eden as the holiest of all. This wasn't just any garden. It was a temple garden. Such were the conditions of Adam's work. Then consider also the content of Adam's work. Verse 15 records that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now the word work means to serve and to labor. It tells us that even though... uh, Toil and labor before the fall was not grievous, wasn't painful. Nevertheless, it did require a measure of physical exertion. The word keep means to protect and to guard. It tells us that the first man was in charge of security, that he was the official park ranger of paradise. And these two words combined provide a healthy reminder to all of us, especially us brothers, that work in and of itself is not a necessity derived from the fall, but a gift delivered from heaven. You know, it's important you see that because uh, some people have gotten the notion that paradise is a place of idleness and indulgence. And yet nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, all that misconception of the ideal state does is make us lazy and slothful. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but you know it's very important for us men especially to realize that if we want to live outside of God's will for our lives, we want to be miserable and depressed, then all we need to do is remain jobless, remain unemployed. And even if you are employed, just don't work hard at your vocation. Because the reality is that God has made the man in particular to work and to protect. 
You've heard the, say, uh, the saying, idle hands make the devil's work. It's no surprise then, is it, that the majority of crimes are committed by the unemployed. Now, of course, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that every criminal is jobless. After all, then we wouldn't have politicians. But what I am saying is that you need to recalibrate your thinking if your view of industry is a negative one. That's one aspect of the content of Adam's career. It corresponds to the natural beauty of his habitat. But then there's another aspect which connects to the spiritual beauty of his habitat. You see, Adam was not just to be a farmer and a sentinel. He was also to be a high priest. Allow me to explain. Just as the high priest's lips were to keep knowledge and teach the law, so to Adam in particular was committed the word of God. Just as the high priest's robes were spotless and white, so was Adam created in purity and innocence. And just as the high priest would enter into the sanctuary to commune with the Lord, so did Adam enjoy face-to-face fellowship with his maker. Thus his principal duty was not secular, but sacred. He was a religious minister of the highest capacity and his job description could be condensed into one all-encompassing word, worship. He was the high priest of Eden. Now, knowing what we know about Adam's fall, and remembering the words of Jesus to the dying thief, we have to ask ourselves the following question. How can Christ open the way to paradise? Well, as we've already established, Eden points to the temple. But to what does the temple point? The church. You, says the apostle, are the temple of God. Therefore, the same God who selected a patch of Eden in order to plant his garden, elected a band of sinners in order to form his covenant people. You see, the river which passed through the heart of paradise in order to nourish the land typified the presence of the life-giving spirit in the believer's heart, which bubbles up and quickens the world. And the first Adam, who was there to cultivate and keep the garden, is surpassed in the fullness of time by the second Adam, who cultivates and keeps his church. So I say to you, Christians, that Christ, Christ is the high priest of the church, the spiritual Eden, and therefore he alone 
has the keys to unlock its closed gate. So for Adam's career in paradise. But now let's proceed to our second point. Adam's covenant in paradise in verses 16 and 17. It seems to me that uh, covenants make the world go round. Think about it. In regard to the spouse, it's called marriage. In regard to the house, it's called the mortgage. And in regard to the church, it's called membership. Everywhere you go, in every aspect of life, you are required to enter into covenants in order to function in this world. Covenants make the world go round. But why is that? Why is it that the covenant is the foundation of our relationship with one another? Well, I think the answer, in accordance with that text, is really quite simple. Because the covenant is the foundation of our relationship with God. Take note of two details about the pact between Jehovah and Adam in this section. One, the covenant provides. And two, the covenant prohibits. One, the covenant provides, literally in verse 16, of every tree of the garden, eating you may eat. Friends, this God is not, N-O-T, stingy with his gifts. On the contrary, he blesses us richly with all things to enjoy. Now, to Moses' original audience, this would have been a, a reminder to him uh, to be grateful to, uh, for his master's uh, goodness. He, he was to meditate on how the Lord had blessed Adam with such an abundant environment in Eden. And then he was to ponder how the same Lord had, had blessed Israel with such a rich inheritance in the land of Canaan. When the Jew entered the promised land, a, a country full of houses he did not build, cisterns he did not dig, and vineyards he did not plant, he, he was to call to mind the plentitude of blessings which his first father enjoyed in paradise. And if such was the reminder for those who are in Moses, how much more is it for those who are in Jesus? For not only does our God allow us to eat of every lawful tree, to partake of the good things of this world with a clear conscience, but much more than that, has he not blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ? Think of the liberty and the freedom and the richness of God's kindness to the Christian. In Christ, in eating, God says, in eating, you may eat. The covenant provides. And then, two, the covenant prohibits. How many of you children have touched something that your parents told you not to? Show of hands. Yeah. And how many of you 
when you touch something your parents told you not to, got burned or cut or bruised at some point. Happens. Yeah. Now I trust you understand, after that happened, that the reason your parents told you not to do that thing was not because they like to restrict you or control you, but because they love you and they didn't want you to hurt yourself. Well, that's the way that Adam's heavenly father dealt with him in this text. See, Adam is told that if he transgressed God's one restriction, that literally dying, he would die. The same way that there is an emphasis on liberality in the provision, so now is there an emphasis on severity in the prohibition. You see, he points out the many different kinds of trees that, that uh, populated the land. And he, and he said to Adam's son, take your pick of any one of them. They're all there for you to eat, but that one tree, which is in the midst of them all, that one's out of bounds. You shall not eat of it, or you shall surely die. Now, just one act of disobedience was high treason against heaven and was therefore a capital crime. Nothing short of perfect submission was required in this covenant of works. And before you think, friends, that such a law or such a principle is archaic, that it's outdated and it's irrelevant. Just remember that God will hold every single sinner today to that very same standard. Listen to me, you who are in Adam, who have broken just one of God's holy commandments, you are not sitting on a pew. You are sitting on death row. The sentence is predetermined. You will surely die. And don't think that the death which the judge speaks of here, of here is merely physical death. The reality is far more horrifying. You will not only die once on this earth, you will die a thousand deaths in hell. You will be executed over and over again. You will be tormented in body and soul for all eternity. And there will be no relief, no respite, and no end to your suffering. If you are in Adam today, you will surely die. Hear then the spirits pleading with you. Do not be a fool and carry on in your sin. You see, it's not God's will that you would die and perish. Instead, he extends his love to you. 
Take from the tree of life upon which Christ was crucified. Eat of it, receive him for yourself, and you will live forever. Turn from your wicked ways. Put your trust in Jesus and you will be transplanted from this covenant of works. Placed into the covenant of grace. Taking refuge in Christ who is the second Adam. And then for those of you who know that your sins are forgiven, I'll ask you just this one question. If God has given you so many lawful blessings to enjoy to your heart's content, why would you spit in his face and practice that which is unlawful? See, his commandments are not unreasonable, friends. His decrees are not burdensome. In light of every single good gift which the Father has given to you, should your heart not be the least that you offer back to him? Is this not your reasonable service? To refrain from that which he has Forbidden. First point, Adam's career in paradise. Uh, Second point, Adam's covenant in paradise. Now for our third and final point, Adam's companion in paradise. Children, did you know that there was one thing, one thing in creation that was not good? Did you know that? One thing. And it was that the man should be alone. One thing God says is not good, that the man should be alone. Now, of course, it's not as though the Lord didn't already know this, is it? It's not as if he, uh, he created the man and then thought to himself, hmm, he, uh, he looks kind of lonely and, uh, and then made the woman as an afterthought. No, no, no. Eve was in the mind of God ever before she was in the arms of Adam. But the reason he, he takes Adam through this, uh, this process of having all of the creatures in the animal kingdom pass before him is to demonstrate, to illustrate vividly his Need for a companion, for a suitable helper. I wonder, can you uh, picture the, the look of disappointment on the man's face as he realizes that every lion has its lioness, every duck has its drake, every goose has its gander, but the man doesn't have his missus. Now and then you hear some super spiritual saint say, oh well, you know, I have Christ and so I'm quite content to walk alone in this life. But more often than not, such words proceed from a a proud heart. You see, as image bearers, we are communal beings. 
We are made in the image of the triune God. And just as he is trinity in unity and unity in trinity, so in some mysterious reflection of the divine are we united one to the other. And as we're about to see, nowhere is that unity more manifest than in holy matrimony. So what is the Lord's solution to the man's needs? Well, as my wife and I have experienced not too long ago, he places him under a general anesthetic, and like a precision surgeon, he performs an operation on his side. You know, I recently read a a news article about a, a boy in Virginia by the name of Christopher Hall, who spent the first 12 years of his life without seeing his mother. You see, Christopher was born blind, so he didn't have the privilege of seeing mommy and daddy every day of his life. But at the age of 12, thanks to recent developments in technology, Christopher, for the first time, through the lenses of electronic spectacles, saw his mother. And as he later reflected upon that very special moment, he said this during an interview, I saw my mom, and she was pretty. Well, if Christopher thought his mom was pretty, The first time he laid eyes on her. Imagine what went through Adam's mind. The first time he laid eyes on Eve. So filled was his heart with wonder at the beauty of the woman who stood before him that he serenaded her with those poetic words of verse 23. This at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Well, I won't keep you for long, but there are two brief lessons which we can learn about marriage from this mini-love poem. First, the unity of the husband with his wife, and second, the authority of the husband over his wife. First, the unity. All that is Adam's becomes Eve's, and all that is Eve's becomes Adam's, so that the two are made one flesh. This, of course, at the very least, means that the husband and wife are to share all things in common. They each possess each other's possessions. It also means, according to verse 24, that the man is to prioritize his covenant with his wife over his relationship with his family. So, to be blunt, guys, there's no room in marriage for mommy's boys. But more than both of these things, it means that the way the husband and wife are to treat one another is with the same degree of gentleness and affection and care as the way that they treat their own self. They belong to one another. Husbands, writes the Apostle Paul, should love their wives as their own body. For he who loves his wife loves himself. 
I'm sure many of you have heard Matthew Henry's comments on this topic, but you know it never gets old and it's fresh every time I quote it, so I'll do it anyway. He writes, Eve was not taken from Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. That's the unity of the husband with his wife. But then there's the authority of the husband over his wife. This is clear from the fact that Adam names the woman, a symbol of superiority in the ancient world. Accordingly, although the husband and wife are one, they are united, nevertheless the man must take the lead. Just as with the garden, his duty is to cultivate and to protect his bride. This also means, ladies, that you have a duty, of course, to submit to your husbands in the Lord. The apostle writes, let the wife see that she respects her husband. But beyond these practical applications, I want you to see how this all relates to the main theme. That Christ died to bring us to paradise. You see, if Adam is a type of Christ, then Eve is a type of the church. How so, you say? Well, Christ slept the sleep of death, and out of his wounded side was built his holy bride. The father gave her hand to him in marriage, and he, upon receiving her to himself, becomes one spirit with her. The bride of Christ enjoys union with her husband. He shares all in common with her. His holiness, his inheritance, even his throne. All in common, accepting, of course, his divinity. Saints, here's the point. All that you have, which is of any worth or value, has come to you by virtue of your union with the Messiah. When he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he rose again, you were raised again. And when he took his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high, far above all principality, power, might, and dominion, you were raised with him above all of your and his enemies. Bride of Christ enjoys union with her husband. But that begs the question then, doesn't it? If Christ has unity with his bride, then does he not also have authority over her? This is why we find Jesus 
in the Gospels, giving his disciples new names. He was, he was demonstrating that he is the second Adam, the head of his church. And therefore, whenever he speaks to you through the preached word, through the written word, you should know that he is addressing you as a loving husband. He calls you to obey because you are his. Remember, marriage works both ways. If all that Christ has is yours, then wouldn't it be scandalous to even think that all that you have isn't Christ? But most importantly, remember the cost with which he purchased you. That he left his heavenly Eden on your behalf. That he gained his garden of glory by enduring the garden of Gethsemane. That he was wounded not with the surgeon's knife, but with the soldier's nail. Brothers and sisters, in the second chapter of the Bible's first book, Moses guides us through the Garden of Eden and points out the various elements of life within it. And in so doing, he shows us, he teaches us of the significance of the covenant, of the gift of work, and of the sanctity of marriage. But if there's one thing that I want you to go away with tonight, if there's one thing that I want you to grasp above everything else, it's that the gates of paradise are flung wide open for all who will run into the arms of Jesus today. So listen to his call to you, reading from Revelation chapter 2, as he welcomes you into his loving embrace. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our glorious God and our Heavenly Father, what kind of love is this? That we, though rebels, that we, although we are those who have conspired against you in Adam, should be brought near in Christ and called sons and daughters of the living God. We thank you, we bless you, we are in awe at such mercy, at such grace. Father, if there is any lost sinner in our midst tonight who is still outside of the gates of Eden, who is in danger of hellfire, we pray that they would respond even now to your call, to the call of Christ, to the call of the Spirit, to enter in through the gate and to enjoy union and fellowship with you. 
We worship and adore you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.